the first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Hayne Bashith Zabner. We talked about his new book, An Army Like No Other, How the Israeli Defence Force Made a Nation. We discussed how the Zionist project in Palestine depended upon the erasure of the culture of the pre-World War II Jewish diaspora, why it is that Israeli military operations command near unanimous support within Israel, and how Israel's economy has become massively dependent on its military-industrial complex and permanent conflict. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books. 2020 marks 50 years of radical publishing for Verso. To celebrate, they've launched the Verso Book Club, a subscription model with print and digital options starting from just £5 per month. Join now and get every new ebook that they publish every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. In August, Verso print subscribers will receive Mackenzie Walk's new book, Sensoria, Thinkers for the 21st Century, or Brenna Bandar and Rafif Ziadar's edited collection of interviews tracing 40 years of anti-racist feminist thought, revolutionary feminisms. There's also the option to become a Verso comrade and receive even more books in the mail, including one new work of politics or theory every month, as well as the occasional classic from Verso's backlist. All book club members will also get 50% off everything on their website. To celebrate their 50th year of radical publishing and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. And now to today's interview. Professor Hainbrushy Zabner is a filmmaker, photographer and a film studies scholar. He's a professorial research associate at SOAS, part of the University of London. He's the author of The Holocaust for Beginners with Stuart Hood. And his films include the widely shown BBC documentary State of Danger, a film on the first Palestinian intifada. He's currently writing a novel about Israel-Palestine in the 1950s. I began the interview by asking Haim to explain how his parents, both survivors of the Holocaust, made their way to Palestine after their liberation, and how despite being anti-Zionist, they eventually came to an accommodation with the settler colonial project. They had no plans to go anywhere. They were Poles, Jewish Poles, that but for um, Nazism would have been there until today. When the um, war started, of course, they were incarcerated in the ghetto in the town that they both lived. They both come from the same town. My father was married to another woman who, in 1943, was taken to Treblinka together to get with his mother and sisters and killed there. So this was his first wife. Now, they both lived in the ghetto and worked in the ghetto, and because they were young and strong, they survived until they were taken to Auschwitz. And they survived Auschwitz for almost a year, which is very unusual. But when the Nazis vacated 
Auschwitz after 15th of January 1945, they were both taken on what is called a Fuss March, which march. is a death yeah. march. And my mother ended up in Bergen-Belsen. Again, amazingly, she walked all the way there. And um, I just still can't understand this. And my father walked all the way to Austria to uh, Mauthausen and then ended up in a subcamp of Mauthausen, which the Nazis called the Hell of Hells because it was the worst camp to be in. And that camp was Gussen too, where people were used as human mules in huge, very long and narrow tunnels in, in the mountain above Mauthausen, where they built the V2 at the end of the war. So there were human mules, and there is a picture of my father in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, but also in the Mauthausen Museum as you enter the museum. We didn't know this until we <laughs> visited, you know. As you walk into the museum, he's the center of a picture of four inmates on the Liberation Day eating some food that the Americans gave them. Of course, they don't, they don't have a stitch on. They're totally naked, and they look like walking skeletons. So both my parents have survived despite and against the odds and ended up in Torino. My, my mother, who knew that my father survived from the Red Cross lists, searched for him all over Europe without a penny in her pocket. Of course, she was, you know, an inmate that was freed by the British. And she found him in Torino, and they got married. And they didn't want to go to Palestine. You know, at the time, Palestine was the only place that was possible to go to, illegally, of course, because the British wouldn't give them certificates. But they wouldn't go, and they tried to leave to the United States and other places. But of course, no other country was actually so nice as to offer visas to enter. So in 1948, when it was still the only place they could go to, but now legally, they've decided to, to go. And I was born in 1946, so I was two years old. And on the boat, there was arms training. My father refused to partake. He said he will not fight anyone, will not kill anyone and didn't want to be killed either, and he's not going to use arms. He was arrested on arrival into Haifa, and was kept, and there was no legal standing for conscientious objectors. It didn't exist as a concept, as a legal department, etc. You couldn't do it. It's remarkable, isn't it, in the, when people think about draft resistors in Israel, I think the earliest point people tend to think back to is the first Lebanon war, I suppose. Actually, he may have been the first, if not the second or the third. I don't think that more than a handful existed in 1948. So he was put in jail and he was due to be in jail for three years. And then the judge, when he was brought the second time before a judge and court martial, said to him, listen, you can be drafted without fighting. You can be a medic and uh, you won't have to carry a gun. So uh, my father, in the end, broke down, if you want, and agreed to not carry a gun and be a medic. And he was in famous battles in Latrun. Somehow he survived. So you can see that their entry into Palestine or Israel was not 
welcome in the way that the mythology tells us. And while he was in jail, by the way, my mother and I, as a baby, were also in jail in the biggest British jail that was turned into an entry camp. And they could not leave because the camps were locked and kept by the army for years. And some of them lived in camps for more than 10 years. Now, how did they turn to support Zionism. I, I think basically Zionism is a very powerful, both material and ideological system, which is very powerful. And after some years, they've started forgetting things that happened before and more and more became part of, you know, I mean, individuals are not capable of fighting a system like this unless they are totally committed and politicized and have an organization behind them and friends to support them. They were not political. My, uh, you know, my father's refusal to serve was more humanistic than politicized. He never joined the Communist Party, though his brother was in the Communist Party in Israel all his life. So, in the end, in 1967, when I was fighting as an officer in the Golan Heights, and I came for a furlough, totally devastated and totally against the war, they wanted me to come with them to Jerusalem to the liberated Wailing Wall, as they called it, and I refused because I thought this was a nationalistic symbol and I didn't want to partake in, in this kind of ritualistic dancing. So we changed positions, you know. My father, who refused to fight, now joined the, the crowd. So this is just a measure of how very principled people who were never nationalists could actually join because of the power of... Zionism as a movement, they could join it and, and, and be dictated to by it. You point out in the book that Israeli military operations, public support for them is, is unusually high as compared to wars fought by other states. It'll be sort of over 90% of the population supporting the Operation Cast Lead or, or something like this. And I suppose if one chooses to not go along with the ideology of the state of Israel and, and the militarism, one is really choosing to be a, a pariah in a way that is not the same, say, if one opposes a, a war in the United States, for instance. Of course, you know, the wars in Israel are always presented as existential wars. None of them actually was existential apart from 1973. But none of the wars, including 1948, were not really existential. Because the power of the IDF, ever since it was set up, in 1948, on the basis of older organizations, was such that even the combined forces of the Arab armies never had a chance against it, as I describe in the book and as historians have pointed out. So, in a sense, in Israel, unlike other countries, you are a pariah and an outcast if you are not supporting any action, I mean any action, that the IDF is taking. And the, I think the, the level of support is basically unheard of in, in other countries. So this has been the history since 1948, or even before, before the IDF became uh, called that. The support of military activity is really very high because we're talking about 
a settler colonial state or a settler colonial society before the state is set up. And you can think about the American Revolution and the support that action against the Amerindians had in North America, which was very, very high, of course, because it was always seen and presented as an existential question. Of course, it was only an existential question for the Amerindians, not for the whites, but this is how it was presented. So, you know, you find very few societies were with, you know, supportive 96% typically of military action, whatever it might be. I imagine that a support of Israel might say something about the, although obviously, as you say, Israel has a very powerful military. It's a small country. It lacks strategic depth. Uh, you, you know, you can't really sort of retreat into the country. You can't really fight a sort of defensive battle. And this is how the IDF's preference for offensive operations is is defended. So, so what do you make of that argument? Because it's sometimes sort of said, if Israel loses a war, there won't be another war to fight because it will be defeated comprehensively. Well, first of all, the idea of strategic depth really doesn't exist nowadays because the war is not really fought in the way that it was fought in the 19th or even mid-20th century. We're talking about technological wars, we're talking about wars at great distance. So that's the first thing. The second thing is basically in a colonial, in a settler colonial society, Everything is presented as existential with good reason, because, of course, no society gives in willingly to settler colonial forces. Conflict is permanent. Yeah, conflict is basically innate in such a society. So it's, it's nothing to do with the depth or otherwise. When Israel controlled all the territories, that it did after 1967, it behaved in the way that we now know very well. It attacked right, left and center beyond those territories as well. So it attacked in Egypt, it attacked in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq. It attacked in, in, in Libya, in Tunisia, and in Africa, in, in Eastern Africa, as you know. So it wasn't a question ever of a strategic depth or uh, territory. It was a question of holding on to more and more territory and trying to get even further. And this is obviously true since Herzl. I mean, Herzl wanted the whole of Palestine and he wanted it without the population. Of course, he didn't write this openly, as you know, but he, in his diary, describes how he will so-called transfer the population to the countries surrounding Palestine. So uh, this is not a, a new idea and it's not to do with the existential threat to Israel, but it is to do with the holding on to the territory. And to hold on to the territory in the best and safest way, you have to expel every one of the indigenous population. Now, if expulsion doesn't work, which of course it didn't in the northern United States, then you use extermination. 
And sometimes in, in most of those societies, you use a combination of both. It starts with expulsion, say in South Africa, into the Bantu stands. And if it doesn't work and the black population revolts in the center of towns, then you use exterminatory measures. So th this is a scaled response to what is really an existential threat, and that is the threat of the, the indigenous population to hold on to the areas they live in. And, and that's where it becomes existential for, for Zionism, because Zionism doesn't see itself ever as accepting, and, and Netanyahu is very clear about it when he says Israel is not a country of its Arab citizens. So this is the only country that doesn't belong to its citizens, but belong to people who are not its citizens, and which are putatively the Jewish people, wherever they are and whoever they, they may be. So uh, there isn't another country that doesn't belong to its citizens and also at the same time belongs to people who are not its citizens. Just going back to your parents and their experience of, of migrating to, to Palestine, I would imagine that most people would assume that people who, who moved to the region after the Second World War or even previously as well, that they did so with a great deal of enthusiasm. And, and as you say, it, in the case of your parents, Israel was the only option. There were no other options, which you know is obviously kind of ironic when we think about the, the mythology of the Second World War, because one could think today that the Western allies fought the war on behalf of the Jewish people almost. But although clearly your father was unusual as a, as a draft resistor, do you think that lack of enthusiasm was the case for, for a pretty large sector of the population initially? Yeah, I mean, here we come to a very successfully silenced part of Israeli history, and that is the oppression of the incomers from 1945. There were two large groups that came into to Palestine in 1945 and to Israel in 1948. About 300,000 of Holocaust survivors, let us consider them, sometimes they're called Ashkenazis, I think historians which are, I find more objective call them the Yiddish people because Yiddish was their language and their culture. And they were the people from basically Eastern Europe in the main. And of course, they come from the Eastern Europe, but they are called Western. This is how ideology works in Israel. So North African Jews are Eastern, bizarrely. Exactly. They come from the from West, but they are Eastern. Yeah. <laughs> Mizrahis. So this is how the power of ideology can easily come up with these inventions and, and they exist to our day. Those two groups, more than a million of people from North Africa and a smaller number from Iraq, Syria, small numbers from Iran and Turkey, but mainly from North Africa, as you said, they come in unwillingly in the sense that, for example, in Iraq, the oldest diaspora in existence, 2,500 years old, they had no intention of going to Israel. And the Israelis realized that and actually initiate a series of bombings in synagogues in Basra and in Baghdad by the Mossad. The people who throw the bombs are caught red-handed as uh, they, they were later on in, in Cairo. And they used leaflets 
blaming supposedly they were communists and, and, and nationalists. But the, the people were caught and, and brought to, to justice. But this episode drives the Iraqi population to, to leave to Israel. The Iraqi uh, government asks them not to leave, by the way. They are really asking them not to leave because they don't want them to feel pushed out because this is the middle class, by the way, of this Arab society. And a similar situation exists in, in North Africa where Zionist propagators are in a sense, fueling anti-Semitism by saying the Jews are not proper citizens of this country and they should leave. And in a sense, a situation is built that panic drives those people, mainly from Morocco, but also from Algeria and Tunisia, very few from Egypt, out of their countries that they have been in for so long that we don't even know the, the beginning of, of, of Jewish habitations in those countries. And basically, a lot of people, the middle class goes to France because French was our, uh, their language and they had, as opposed to the Muslims, they had the right to go to France. So, you know, the French were playing the Jews against the Muslims from like any colonial regime. And the Jews had the right to go to France and those that could afford to went to Paris or to, to, to southern France. Those that didn't have any, any funds or any education to support them ended up in Israel. And when they arrived to Israel, they ended up in decrepit, horrible conditions in the transit camps. And I, as I said, some of them spent more than a decade in those camps. They couldn't work. They were kept by soldiers so that they couldn't leave the camps. The Israeli television just produced two years ago 20 episodes about those camps. What came out, historians knew this, and those that read the books knew it, but the population was quite shocked by the discovery of what happened to the European survivors and the North African incoming population. And those two populations were treated with not just disdain, but hostility. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to, to go on about this, but I'll just explain some elements of this hostility. Arabic and Yiddish were languages not to be spoken. So I, as a child, would say to my parents on the bus, please speak Hebrew. Do not speak Yiddish. I was not in any way special. All the children of refugees that came to Israel after 1945 were basically tutored at school to say to their parents, only speak Hebrew. Now, none of these people spoke Hebrew in their daily life, neither in Morocco, nor in Poland, or in Russia, or in Romania, etc. I mean, they didn't speak Hebrew, they prayed in Hebrew, but they didn't know the language as a language in daily life. For example, it was not legal to produce theater in Yiddish. Can you imagine that? That in a state call itself, calling itself the state of the Jewish people, 
the language which call, is called Jewish. I mean, Yiddish means Jewish. Yeah, you, you know that. That the language of Jews, of most Jews in the world before the Holocaust, was illegal to produce. Now, not only that, Ben Gurion was so hostile to Yiddish that he put a special tax on paper if it was to be used in Yiddish newspapers or books. That was the only language which had this special tax to silence the cultural production in Yiddish. So Arabic, of course, was uh, the language of the enemy, and therefore there is no doubt you couldn't speak Arabic. And, you know, the same story that I'm telling you, Ella Shochat tells in her writing that she was the agent of the state that didn't allow her parents to speak Arabic, but also had to translate everything into Arabic because her parents didn't speak Hebrew. So, you know, there was a whole system of hostile limitation on Jewish cultures, North African Jewish cultures, Iraqi Jewish cultures, Turkish, Iranian. I mean, these were very, you know, rich cultures. And of course, European cultures, the different versions of them, they were suppressed with all that the state could do, not just in terms of language, but the, uh, the culture itself. You know, the books, the, the daily papers in those languages were very expensive, so people couldn't afford them. Everything the state could do to, to suppress the culture and language, they did. That brings me on to my next question, really, because as well as, as, as you described the suppression of, of Yiddish and, and other languages, you talk in the book about the way in which Zionism was, was really a generalised repudiation of the life of the Jewish diaspora before World War II and, and a determination to create this very homogenous and, and, and martial culture that was very alien to Jewish life before the founding of, of the State of Israel. So could you talk about some of the, some of the other ways in which Zionism was, was hostile to, ashamed of, and, and even repulsed by much of the culture of the pre-war European diaspora? Well, you, you can see that Zionism had to, to be very drastic in re-editing Jewish history. Because for 3,000 years, the Jews were not a military power with very small exceptions, insignificant exceptions. For example, the fight against the Romans never stood a chance. And indeed, it was defeated twice within a 100 years with terrible results for Jewish life and Jewish culture. So those exceptions, like the famous Masada and the, the, the fall of Jerusalem, what is so beautifully and, and sadly described by Flavius Josephus, these martial episodes and Jewish life were total failures. The book of Joshua describes the destruction of, in 26 chapters, the total destruction, supposed destruction, of 11 national communities in Palestine. And this is the myth that Israel was built on. In other words, you come, you burn, you kill, you destroy not just people, but animals, the stocks, the houses. In other words, this is an extermination which the Bible not only suggests, but actually, it's not a recommendation, you have to do it. Okay? Um, and this is the story of the book of Joshua. Now, we know today, because archaeologists have proven, 
that none of this has actually happened. Now, that in a sense is good news, <laughs> but the bad news is that Zionists believe that it happened exactly like it's described in the Bible, because that's what they want to believe. That is the myth that is useful for them. In other words, in order to get the Palestinians out of Palestine, and most of them were expelled from Palestine in 1948 and later, they needed a myth of the kind of the Book of Joshua. Now, I don't know of another myth, which is actually universally read and so on, which is so genocidal as the Book of Joshua. So, first of all, what the Zionist movement has done is edited the Jewish history to include only those martial parts that A, didn't exist, and B, if they did, they failed. And on the basis of those mythological and invented mythologies, invented histories, they created the mindset of Zionism towards the Palestinians. And that was necessary, because if you want to get rid of a population of 1.3 million, well, you can't do it through a cocktail party. Yeah, no, no half measures. Exactly. Now, basically, the whole of Jewish history of 3,000 years or so is on the whole, clean of such genocide or militarism, yeah? So, uh, you know, the, the, the great kingdom of David was basically an invention. The whole of Jewish history had to be reworked. In other words, you had to erase, to remove, to deny, to actually excise 2,000, 3,000 years of history. And because this history was not useful. And it was shameful. It was shameful that Jews did not come to Palestine for 3,000 years when they could, could have come, you know? Nobody was stopping them. It was shameful that they were not milit militarized. It was shameful that for, for Zionism, the Jews did not rise against Hitler. By the way, this is a lie. If you look at histories of the Holocaust and the Second World War, the population that had the highest percentage in fighting as partisans against the Nazis were the Jewish population of Eastern Europe. Who knows this in Israel? Nobody. So I'm very proud that, you know, Jews fought the Nazis in higher numbers than the French, the Belgian, you know, I mean, the Italians, etc., you know, uh, uh, the Poles, the Russians, yeah? This was the highest percentage of population fighting the Nazis. So, the lies go a long way. They denied thousands of years of Jewish life. It was very difficult, but also very fruitful, very successful until the Holocaust. You know, Jews have arrived, you know, they, they got civic rights in most of Europe and were represented in the Polish parliament that was, you know, this is a, an anti-Semitic country after all, they had enormous representation in the Polish parliament and people had to listen to them. So, uh, the idea that Jews were, that the Jewish community lived a shameful life, it, it's really terrible that this has become the heart of Zionism. It really is destructive. And instead of talking about Jewish life, Zionism is talking about Jewish death. That is the only thing that it is interested in. Jewish life in Iraq, Jewish life in Morocco, Jewish life in Iran. I mean, these were amazing communities. 
they have contributed to Al-Andalus in Spain. And without the Jewish Muslim culture of Al-Andalus, we wouldn't have the Renaissance. You know, Jews and Arabs have translated Greek mythology and Greek plays and, the, and, and Plato and Aristotle into Arabic. And without those translations, we wouldn't have them today. You know, this is incredible that this is amazing Jewish life in peace and many times in harmony with other communities like Andalus or in other parts like in Turkey, for example. The Jews lived for a thousand years in Poland. They were invited into Poland by the king and they have not always suffered anti-Semitism. On the contrary. So, you know, Zionism basically lives on the denial of Jewish life and on the elevation of Jewish death. So everything is just boiled down to the life of the ghetto, pogroms and, and, and the Holocaust. Because that to them means, yeah, we needed Zionism to save us from that. And here we are. And the shame is over. We have wiped the shameful past. This is the presentation. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.